Hey there, welcome to Subject Matter Season 4, where we're discovering how to build a strong company culture. We're learning from fast-moving founders and CEOs and how their cultures make customers want to work with them and talent want to work for them, in some cases completely remotely. I'm your host, Ben Bradbury, the founder of Astutely, and our team is dedicated to supporting B2B leaders to build aligned company cultures at scale. And now, let's get into today's episode. Today's interview is with Lara Vandenberg, the CEO and founder of Publicist, the company redefining the way brands hire communications and marketing talent. Publicist is the online marketplace to source premium pre-vetted marketing and communication experts on demand. Solving a major pain point for the industry and as a thought leader in the future of work category, Lara is on a mission to transform the inefficiencies in marketing. Prior to Publicist and over the course of her career, Lara has led communications and marketing from high-growth tech and consumer startups to large enterprises. She was named to the Forbes 30 Under 30 list and the B&T 30 Under 30 list for innovation in advertising. On today's interview, we spoke about why CEOs need to create a personal board of directors alongside their company board. We discussed why marketers in particular have a responsibility to set culture and why marketing exists in a knowledge-sharing economy. And we learn why, even as CEO, Lara still manages to regularly find the time for customer service and how she has set up Publicist to have maximum exposure to her customers. This is a fascinating interview packed with insights, and I hope you enjoy. Lara, welcome to Subject Matter. It's great to have you here. Thanks, Ben. I'm excited for the conversation. So I thought we could open by talking about a trend that you mentioned the last time that we spoke, which was the explosion of specialization. What did you mean by this and why does this matter? Yeah, so I started my career about 10 years ago and have been on multiple sides of the industry. So started in Australia on the agency side and came over to the US 2013 with a large enterprise client. I then worked at a high-growth direct-to-consumer startup and then a a tech startup that you and I met at. And I give context to that because in the 10 years that, you know, I've had professional experience, the way in which brands engage with marketing talent has changed drastically. 10 years ago, brands would usually have perhaps a creative agency and a digital marketing agency and a public relations agency. And that was kind of the form, the very, you know, stock standard relationships that that existed. But move on 10 years to where we are now and the diversity of skills and services that exists in our marketplace really ranges from crisis communications to TikTok creative to the explosion of performance marketing. You know, MarTech is a really big reason for a lot of these new skills. 10 years ago, we were finding that people were much more generalist and could touch a lot of things. And the trends have been people are finding their their beats and really sticking to those. And And where do you think this sets us up to go? So if we've got to a point where the generalists are being replaced with the specialists and we're increasingly seeing these very specific skill sets, talk to us about what that's going to look like over the, the coming years, the next two, three, four years into the 2020s. What, what does this trend of specialization tell you about where the marketing industry could be going? So back to 10 years ago, the makeup of 
a brand's relationship with contractors was about 90% full-time employees and 10% contractors. Now, fast forward to today, and that makeup is much closer to 50-50 from full-time employees to contractors. And, you know, when we say contractors, that could be somebody who's given an hour of advice or has been a contractor for, for three years. Now, research shows that by 2030, the pendulum is absolutely going to swing in the other direction and brands are going to have closer to 20 to 30% of full-time and that 70 to 80% of contractors. And so we're going to start to see businesses of one or businesses of two or three. And so the people that are hyper-specialized in whatever it is, go-to-market strategists or investor relations, I think we're going to see a lot more people become these solopreneurs and contractors and have multiple clients that way. So it seems like what we're doing here is talent is becoming atomized rather than the these large group pods where creatives have to function in these big teams. It's now you don't even have to be part of a small team. You can be part of yourself so long as you just have that very specific skill to add to the market. And one of the things that I think is really interesting about um, your company's mission, which is to democratize talent. There's a nice interplay there of how talent is trying to get access at kind of every level, but at the same time, there's more talent to access than ever. But this hasn't always been the case. And I know that historically it's been, or you believe it's been hard for premium marketing and communications talent to be hired. Why has it historically been hard to get access to this premium marketing talent, especially as we become more specialized? Historically, if a Fortune 1000 company has their agencies, they're exclusive with with those relationships. And so on the flip side, I think a lot of these smaller solopreneurs or smaller agencies haven't had access to these much larger clients. And so I think it's really been an access thing more than anything. And so I think in terms of us trying to democratize access to this talent as well, given that these massive companies are now much more open to using platforms and changing kind of away from that agency model and look, you know, agencies are some of our, our biggest clients. And so not to speak negatively about agencies, but I think it's a mindset and a mind shift that has changed that it is easier, it's quicker. A lot of this talent is is pre-vetted already. And so I think another reason here is people have relied so heavily on LinkedIn as a source of of new talent. And I think, you know, we see HR teams and talent teams spend so much time in the weeds and trying to find full-time hires, part-time contractors, and it's just not always the best or the quickest or the most economical solution. So there are a few reasons there. They, they kind of seem like two different factors though. Like on the one hand, you have access in that it's very hard to reach these people, but then on the other, you have the speed or the time that it takes to hire that person. How do you think about the the latter? We'll get into access in a little bit, but how do you think about speeding up the hiring cycle? Because if the problem is that I need that freelancer or that contractor in two days and it's going to take me two weeks to hire them, what can a CEO or a founder do to reduce the time it's going to take them to hire this specialized talent? What the flow looks like right now the most common flow if we're you know, using LinkedIn as an example is a hiring team looks to LinkedIn to find contractors. 
from there, they will put uh, said contractor into, usually it's a Google spreadsheet. So all of a sudden you've kind of lost all data as is. Then perhaps if you speak to them, applicant tracking systems may come into play. And then there's systems that, again, don't speak to each other, such as sending contracts and payments and then onboarding the talent. And so these are six different systems and softwares that actually don't speak to each other. And often there's buy-in from HR, the CMO, CFO and COO or people under their respective teams. And so it's a really long, arduous and expensive process to even hire a contractor. And as I mentioned, a contractor could be someone that you are paying for one hour or two hours worth of advice. And so a lot of these processes don't necessarily make sense. And so, you know, what we're doing is really from having a pre-approved platform It's allowing people to, we've got a great quote from a Fortune 10 client of ours that says, usually it takes six weeks to hire someone outside of publicists, but with publicists, you know, we've hired people as quickly as four hours. And so given that understanding the talent data from this person's available, they have, you know, legacy knowledge of the brand, the price is right, uh, they're available today. And so it's not only a bandwidth and a time issue but you sometimes there are contractors that you know are going to happen around cyclical events like maternity leave or spikes in holidays and so being able to plan out contract talent that way as well I think a lot of the systems that I mentioned don't solve for that. It's interesting this is one of the recurring themes that we have come up on this season of subject matter is that in order to build effective products that are going to serve your your users and serve them in a timely convenient fashion you have to make sure that the parts all the parts of the business are talking to each other and that it seems like is one of the big areas that founders and ceos listening can potentially enhance their workflows is to say well if i have this six stage process to hire talent where is the communication breaking down where can i streamline this where can i use a platform or a service that is going to take those six and roll that into two stages or roll that into one stage and it it really does show that we're in an economy where we are paying for convenience now our industry has been so foundational to word of mouth and rightly so and back to your point earlier i think that's how a lot of people are recommended for jobs or have access to great talent or brands is is through word of mouth but unfortunately that isn't scalable and only kind of gets you so far the scale of things is interesting because you you've described the marketing industry if it's blown out before as a knowledge sharing economy which i thought was a really interesting phrase what do you think it is about marketing specifically that makes it this knowledge sharing economy where people are happy to pay their knowledge forward So in marketing, I believe that we are in such a knowledge sharing economy. And one of the main reasons is not many people have had a really linear path to get them where they are. And I think, you know, that is fueled by technology and different types of services that we were talking about, back to the explosion of specialization. I think that marketing moves so fast from, you know, what's going on in culture to different technologies, to different skill sets and services that it's just a community of thought leaders that are constantly paying it forward. I think that the way in which people learn in communications and creative and marketing, yes, there are textbooks and you can go to college, but it is really a skill set that you learn on the job, kind of the knack of, you know, brand marketing or performance marketing or storytelling. I think it's very, you know, practice-driven 
ecosystem that we're in. And so we're in such an industry of mentorship and menteeship. And it's not always learning from someone who's been in the industry from 30 years, but it could be that 22-year-old kid still at school that is mastered Instagram reels or, or whatever it is. And so I think that social platforms have allowed for marketeers to be these influencers in their own right, these these micro influencers. But it's a very engaged community. And even that's what we see on both our products publicist and, and operator is such this knowledge sharing, peer-to-peer kind of seeking out of, of community. Yes, something interesting you said there I want to pick up on, which is that you're seeing these kind of various problems exist in silos. So on the one hand, you have ambitious professionals who want access to mentors, but don't know where to get them. On the other hand, you have experienced professionals who want to pay it forward, but might not know who to pay it forward to. This is why I think that publicist is such an interesting value proposition and and operator, which we can get into. It's because it really drives this aggregation of mentorship so that people who are ambitious can go to one place and say, okay, well, I exist in this knowledge sharing economy. What's the easiest way to get access to people who can help me pay this forward? I think we're directly seeing this trend of people becoming thought leaders and those thought leaders proliferating in numbers. And so the question is, what are the the platforms that we can use? Because ultimately we're all humans, we're all social. What are the platforms we can use to connect people together in the right context so the right knowledge can be shared at the right time? The peer-to-peer networks, I think LinkedIn is the number one place for in finding mentorship like that. And I think communities, you know, I'm part of a, a marketing book club on LinkedIn. And I think in terms of access at a very, you know, no barrier to entry standpoint is is definitely LinkedIn and communities there. I'm part of, you know, Slack groups and Facebook groups. And so I think, as I mentioned earlier, the marketing community yearns for this sense of, of community and, and peer-to-peer knowledge. And then obviously from a more pay-to-play and more structured uh, menteeship, that's why we, one of the reasons we build Operator. So I think this is a really interesting jumping off point to talk about Operator, your new product in a bit more detail. And I think an interesting angle to explore this through is a quote you shared the last time we spoke, which is that our industry is dictated by culture. Why do you think the marketing industry is so heavily dictated by culture? And how did this inform your decision to build Operator? I think that the marketing and advertising industry, they play a huge role in shaping society, but it's this intrinsic connection. And I think every marketer has a really important job to play. And I think what most people don't acknowledge is that marketing actually has a responsibility for shaping not only our generation, but you know the next generation and, and for our kids. And so understanding that we live in a multicultural, multiracial society that, you know, there goes without saying there should be gender equality and equality for all races and sexual orientation and everything. And that should be the foundation of our marketing. And then as marketers, we should be actually building stories on top of that. And then on the flip side, as a marketing category, we see things that, you know, we need to run in different directions that Clubhouse last year was, you know, the big thing or earlier this year. And so we adjust our marketing directions and and strategies around that. So I think, you know, culture and marketing have a very intrinsic relationship. Now, 
Publicist uh, is, you know, a platform that allows brands and agencies to hire longer-term marketing contractors. So our average project on, on Publicist is closer to six months. But what we kept on seeing on the platform were people were coming to us to almost pulse check strategies or they wanted our advice before they went and spent on on this six-month project. You know, similar things we were seeing and kind of back to culture, we were seeing so many agencies or brands saying to us, do you have a, a DEI strategy or, or templates you can indicate around communicating X, Y, and Z coming up? So as publicist is longer-term contracts, we really saw this need for shorter domain expertise so an hour or two to be able to pick someone's brain rather than you know the people that are actually the executors and and doing the work and so about a month and a half ago we launched operator which is an expert network for chief marketing officers heads of dei heads of social heads of content business leaders and we've really provided back to you know our mission is to democratize access to talent we've given these chief marketers a platform to integrate their calendar, their bank details. They can also donate the fee to charity, but give access to individuals or agencies or brands that are able to book them for an hour or two. And so, you know, whether it's a smaller company that wants to pulse check their inclusivity strategy, we've got the head of DEI from Omnicom, or if it's someone that wants to understand, you know, does this creative resonate outside the US, we've got people that they can absolutely go to it's a platform that we're really excited about to bring, again, back to the, the knowledge sharing economy, but be able to provide access through this one-on-one video call. The interesting thing to me about how Operator evolved as a response to Publicist, a marketplace for creative talent to be paired with projects, you're seeing this trend of the explosion of specialization play out in the product strategy. So on the one hand, Publicist is there for people who are working months at a time, perhaps, which is still fairly short-term contracts if we we zoom out in the, the span of working history over the last 50 years. But now, today, in the last month and a half, you have those time spans not just compressed into weeks or days, but into hours. And so you're getting these highly specialized packets of knowledge which are coming at you at a premium. But the idea is that you can take this hour or two hours and that can radically impact your business. So it's interesting to me how the the product is very much a, it very much symbolizes this shift to specialization that we're seeing on a really micro level and just goes to show what can happen when you have the right specialized talent in the room with you for an hour on the expert side, a lot of these people are getting inundated as is from LinkedIn, emails, cold calls, uh, and operator really allows for someone that is is serious, that genuinely has very pointed questions. And we address that in when, you know, you need to request to book someone and we ask, you know, what's the objective? What do you want to get out of this? Is it, is it mentorship? Is it product feedback? Is it go-to-market strategy? Is it whatever the options are. And so then the expert has the ability to accept or decline the meeting if they, you know, don't necessarily think they are the domain expert for this or for other various reasons. But it definitely, it goes both ways from someone that wants the expert and then the expert that can assess if they are the right person to give advice on this or not. That's an important thing to underscore here is that this knowledge sharing economy of paying forward, it's not like you just enter into the industry and you are obliged to pay it forward. It takes work to be able to do that. It's a two-way interplay. And so 
For people who are listening, who are thinking about how to maybe build these kind of similar pay it forward communities in their industries, I think a great point that Lara is making here is to have some kind of barrier to entry so that the people who are getting access to these experts or who are getting this aggregated mentorship, whatever that might look like, they have to be able to put in the work. There's some kind of qualifying mechanism. How do you think about that as as making sure that your your experts, their time is used most effectively? What kind of checks or procedures do you put in place to make sure that the people who are part of your community really feel valued and appreciated for the time that they spend as part of Operator? As I mentioned with the flow, we ask really, really pointed questions on the person, on the company, what they're looking to get out of it. Because, you know, this initial call of one hour, it's it's not a lot of time. You and I are speaking for an hour now and it's flying by. And so I think right. in having a really tight agenda, understanding the objective is absolutely key. Um, it's like anything, right, in managing a consultant. If you give very clear guidelines and expectations, chances are it's going to succeed. But if you are not great at managing the agency or that contractor, chances are it's going to fail or, or not be as, as successful. And so that's something that we really put in place. And I think that all of these experts have years and years and years of really specialised experience. And I think, look, advice at the end of the day is subjective, um, and so no one is, you know, liable if someone goes and makes a product decision based on on advice. But yeah, it's so far it's we've seen some amazing examples of agencies that need domain experts for when pitching on new business. Uh, something that's beautiful that we're seeing a lot of is people are giving the gift of mentorship, which I think is just a, a beautiful thing. And then brands, a lot of startups needing kind of pulse checking. They might not have a CMO yet, uh, but want help in, you know, informing strategy. So advice is the the key subtlety here. I'd be interested to turn the tables for a second. So you're, you've got a company, you're CEO and founder of Publicist. How do you think about vetting the advice that you receive, whether that is from mentors yourself, from things you read, things you consume? What do you look for as signals of as good advice that can help you personally build the company you're building? So last year, I was actually uh, in an amazing kind of mentee group. And, you know, this only ever would have happened as a result of COVID. But every Friday of last year, we met for an hour and a half, late Friday afternoon, and just spoke about mainly work issues, but life issues. And, you know, it was with 30 marketers from all different types of brands, and it was phenomenal. But the reason I bring that up is the person leading the group recommended everyone to actually create a personal board of directors. Now, that's not the board of publicists, but that is creating a board for myself. And so what that means is creating people that I have a direct relationship that I can pick up the phone. And if I need help with legal or sales or relationships or management, I have a very specific person that I can go to for any issue that I need that is outside of, you know, the board that we have here at Publicist. And that's probably one of the best pieces of advice that I have received and would would pay forward is that taking the time to build that board for yourself is absolutely instrumental because as you said, everyone has advice. You know, we are year two of a startup and whether it's running this direction or 
build out this tool or don't do this. It's it really doesn't stop, and it's it's very generous that a lot of people care enough. But to your point, you really need to trust your gut, and the you know we've built a really really smart team here, so we're excited. But I would say the board of directors. Could you talk us through what that process looked like for you of establishing the the personal board of directors? I can imagine that for some people watching if or listening, if they are founders themselves and a large part of yourself goes into your company, they might be having an objection saying, well, hang on, Lara, so much of what I do is my company that why don't I just have my, my company board and be done with it? So how did you kind of mentally separate those? And, and how did you go about realizing who the key people were in your life that were going to form part of this board of directors? So I think that one thing that all founders do at one point is establish what their superpower is and then really quickly you need to figure out what you are not very good at because you can't be good at everything or you can't manage your time effectively if you're trying to be good at everything and you know for example a few years ago I was taking I took three coding classes and I was terrible at them because that's just not my skill set so you need to figure out really quickly what you're good at and then what you should absolutely hire for and I think that is probably the first exercise that you should do as you are building the board of directors and for example you know I have experience with ops and sales but that is somewhere that often I need advice when looking at contracts or you know whatever the example is for marketing and comms I've got peers but that's that's an area where I don't necessarily need a specific board director right now. As I mentioned, even if it's uh, personal, so relationships or just working on yourself, you want that person to be able to call and feel comfortable just as a someone that, and the difference is with creating a company board, often they are focused on you know, revenue and outcomes and the P&L, which is so, so they should be. And that's absolutely something that you should focus on as well. But I think that with your personal board of directors, they've got your personal best interests at heart. Interesting. So they're not so focused on company outcomes, but your personal outcomes. I love this idea that all founders should know their superpower and then aggressively hire for, for the weaknesses. So first of all, to, to put you on the spot, what is your superpower as a founder? What do you think that is? And then second of all, how do you make sure that you're leveraging that as effectively as possible when you're working? My superpower, the last two companies that I worked at uh, were high growth startups. I ran both marketing functions with not a lot of budget, particularly in the beginning. And so being a really scrappy comms and marketing leader is something that I would say that is a strength of mine. In addition uh, to that partnerships and then relationships, definitely a superpower. And so I would say that anything that kind of falls under the comms marketing partnerships realm is something that I'm happy to own. One thing that struck me about operators' business model is that it's heavily influenced by the premise that an hour with the right expert can be a huge value unlocker professionally. So given that you place such a, a premium on the time spent with the right person. How do you think about maximizing the value of the time that the publicist team spends with each other? So that could be in meetings, that could be in developing strategy, even asynchronously over Slack. But how do you think about maximizing the, the time value of the team's 
time spent with each other? We launched in the pandemic, right? We we launched in May of last year. And so for the most part, we have been distributed first and that comes with pros and cons, but, you know, the team is handling it really well. Now, we have very, very structured and short meetings. If we don't need the meetings, they don't happen. I'm a big user of WhatsApp voice notes. So if I have a meeting, you know, with someone and need to report back internally, rather than jumping on the phone for 30 minutes or however long it takes, I will go back to the team in a minute or a three and a half minute voice note. So it's very clearly and concisely understood. We're very regimented with product meetings and and vision meetings. And I think that because of our size, often we need to be problem reductionists. My CTO just kind of came up with this concept in terms of what features and products we build and how to operate day to day, how we do marketing. There's so much that we could be doing, but obviously, you know, we're we're a 10 person team now. And so we can only focus on so much. And so uh, we're running really, really fast at some pretty lofty ambitions. But yeah, so there there are a few ways we really need to maximize our time and be super scrappy to to get everything done and, and to continue to scale. How does that show up in the vision meetings that you talked about? So the CTO's concept of being problem reductionist, just focusing on what really matters, the vision inherently needs to be expansive. You need to be looking out at what could happen. So how do you make sure when you're running these vision meetings that you're focused on a clear North Star and, and still keeping that focus? So I think that both vision and mission and these goals need to absolutely run in parallel against whatever the North Star and whatever the the traction and the goals are. So for example, with us, that is, did we grow supply? Did we grow demand? What is retention? Is the project getting bigger? Are we getting more projects? And so we're looking at those metrics really, really closely, figuring on how to grow month to month, quarter to quarter, and then year over year. That needs to operate in parallel to are we living out this, are we democratizing access to talent? How can we build around that? How can we add in features, additional products? You know, we were we were really happy with the pace in which we launched our second product operator and we'll continue to build out product suites. But back to being product reductionists, it requires a lot of focus uh, just given how quickly we're, we're moving and knowing that you can wear a lot of hats, but you can't wear wear all of them until you really get to that scale. So let's talk a bit about creating best-in-class products, which I think is an aspiration, it's fair to say, you aspire to with the products you're building. And as part of that, you've said that building the best experience possible on both the supply side and the demand side of your marketplace, you need to have feedback. And you're a big advocate for getting feedback. Well, how does Publicist set itself up to solicit both high quality feedback, but also consistently high enough quantity so that you're always learning from your users? We are definitely small enough that everybody is across everything. And, you know, on any given day, I might be answering customer service emails if it's if it's late at night or if it's a holiday, you know, I am customer service. And that's one of my favorite things to do to really be very close with customers or maybe not new customers now, not new customers yet. And so I think that everyone has a direct line to understanding what people are asking. If enough people ask it, how can we build for it? In addition, we have this wonderful community now on Operator of 
these experts, these CMOs and heads of content and heads of DEI and, and everyone. And we are getting on the phone with every single person and asking them, you know, what are their pain points? What have their experiences been? How can we optimize that experience? And so I think having a feedback loop where you can consolidate and then iterate on how to improve experiences. I mean, we are a tech platform and we need to be asking feedback every opportunity we get to really enhance the platform. And I think, you know, there are many services companies or staffing agencies or or agencies and they're relying on their services, not their tech. And so uh, we've got a really fantastic tech team who they've all prior to being engineers have had other jobs that have been commercially driven. And so everyone kind of has a great vision through both a marketing lens and a tech lens. And I think that both product and marketing need to have a a hand-in-hand relationship and the best companies have that down pat. You said that you've actually spent time answering customer service emails. Could you give an example of one of the things that you might have or that you have learned actually deciding to go on the front lines of the to answer the, the customer versus just taking information from your direct reports on answering or learning about the customer? What advantage does it give you actually filling that customer service role from time to time? I think back to us just being so small that everyone is across everything. I don't think that there's necessarily an advantage or a disadvantage. We have our intercom chatbot is connected to our Slack. So it's even if I'm not answering, I'm seeing everything that comes through. And, you know, sometimes it's product feedback. Sometimes it is why am I on the wait list as a freelancer? Sometimes it is when are you opening in different regions? And so we're really building out kind of a a playbook of best responses and how can you start to automate this? Our customer service line allows us to have built a library that people can actually go and search through our content hub of of things that they're they're looking for. And so I don't think we're big enough that there's a disadvantage if someone from my team is is answering just because I have visibility into everything as is. But I think the advantage into having that visibility is we are so close to the customer that we hear everything, we respond to everything. And most often we talk about that feedback and either iterate or, or choose to put it in the product pipeline. And it's important to underscore that that's a choice as well. There, there will be some company leaders who detach themselves from the customers and from that feedback loop. So important to to understand that you've set up your system in a way that allows you to have exposure to the customers at a moment's notice. They send an intercom, boom, that goes to Slack, then you're able to read that instantly. That It sounds like that's a very intentional choice that you've made there. Customers have to be number one. And in our world, we have many customers. We've got supply demand on publicist and we've got supply demand on, on operator. And I just think that we want people to have the best experience. And so if they're telling us that they are having it or that they think that something could be enhanced to have that experience, we will listen. Often we, if someone has phenomenal advice, uh, we'll get them on the phone. Uh, we're always interviewing our our customers and our, our talent just to really hear how we can make the, the experiences as amazing as possible. One of the other things that you talked about in, in building best-in-class products is having flywheels that generate their own momentum. You have a pretty unique way of looking at this, that in your business, that supply can actually become demand. Can you explain that concept for everyone? 
as we spoke about at the beginning of the podcast, back to how agencies work and what they looked like 10 years ago and what they look like today, that has drastically changed. So an example in how supply can become demand, we're seeing a lot of agencies use the platform because what we're noticing is they're keeping much leaner teams. Sometimes they're keeping leaner teams because their clients necessarily aren't 12 months. And so often they want to upskill when they win new business and they don't necessarily know when this will be. It's, you know, not as cyclical as it used to be. So that's one instance in terms of agency hiring supply. Uh, We've seen use cases where same said agencies are on the platform looking to bring in new business that way. So that's an example. On operator, we're seeing experts be on the platform and then their teams are using publicists to hire contractors or, or to be on operator kind of looking for other domain experts outside of their own leader. And so it's lovely kind of back to what we were saying earlier around it being a knowledge sharing economy. It, it's wonderful to see when supply becomes demand and vice versa. So this is really like the the formalization of the knowledge sharing economy. You've said we, we have this underlying trend in marketing. People are already exchanging ideas. So why don't we put some structure around this and actually make it easier for people to transfer their ideas? So you talk about uh, community a lot and you're able to, you're, or you're about to launch the ability for your experts to donate to charity. What was your reasoning behind wanting to launch this feature? It's something that we talk about internally a lot We have our own charities that we donate to, but I think being able to give these experts a platform to donate 100% or 10% or every meeting or one in 10 meetings to charity is a beautiful integration that we can do, so we we should do. And for our founding members, we've asked them to for their charity of choice and we've onboarded all of those charities. So it's something that we're really excited about. As I mentioned, a lot of these people are getting inundated for meeting requests as is via LinkedIn and uh, through email. And, you know, a lot of these people also have full-time jobs. And so it's not something that they can take 40 meetings a week other than, you know, some consultants we have on the platform. They can do 40 meetings a week if they if they wanted to. And so a lot of these people have set aside five hours a week and given that they have full-time jobs sometimes they do want to pay it forward or they're advising these charities or donating to charities as is it's something we're really proud of that they can donate to to their charity of choice it also goes to show that the the industry or the marketing industry of paying it forward it doesn't just exist in the marketing bubble it's it's good to pay it forward as a professional and actually taking the the work that we're doing and the impact and and move that on to to another cause. Well, that segues us nicely to the last question I've got for you today, Lara, which is that the last time you spoke, you said that marketing and advertising is a reflection of the change we want to see in the world. What is the change that you personally want to see in the marketing industry and the change that it's going to create in the world? Us as marketers, we have the responsibility to set culture, understanding that we live in a very diverse world and all definitions from gender equality to race to any kind of sexual orientation, no questions asked, that should be the foundation of marketing. And I think that in how we achieve that and being the change that we want to see in the world, we need to hire and promote and have minorities as 
top-down executives in all functions of of not only marketing but but business. And so I think in that's the change that I would really love uh, to see in the world in promoting diversity top-down. And I think that you know as we spoke about marketing and culture having this very intrinsic relationship, that is one way that you know that we need for it to to be fueled. I think that's a great place to leave our interview today. That's a really positive note. If our listeners do want to keep up with you online, Lara, where can they follow you and keep up with your journey? Yeah, so uh, all socials are Lara Vandenberg or Publicist Co. Fantastic. Lara, thanks so much. This has been a pleasure. Thank you. I so enjoyed this. I could have gone on for another hour. (laughs) Me too. Hey, it's Ben here. Just before you head off, one quick thing. This podcast teaches you the skill of empathetic communication. And if you're interested in accelerating your empathetic communication and to start applying it to your brand and business, we've created an actionable five-step checklist which breaks down the exact steps you need to take to unlock this skill and start creating messages that connect with your customers and employees' heads and hearts. You can download it for free over on our website, weareastutely.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time for another episode of Subject Matter.